So that's the litmus test for us. Have we come eager as we open up the scriptures this morning? Are you filled with eagerness? Yes. Pretty much. Yes. Are you filled with eagerness? Yes. Excitement, curiosity, where could this go? Ah, ready for a feast. Eagerness and prayer. So let's pray. God, as we open up your word, may our hearts be open before you. As your word gets open to us, we don't want to close our hearts. We don't want to hold you at bay. We don't want to sideline you. We want to be fully exposed. We want to be vulnerable to what you have to say through your word by your spirit. And that takes courage and faith, God, so strengthen that in us so that we can respond faithfully to what your word has for us today. And it's in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior Jesus that we pray and ask this in confidence. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. Mark 12, 35 to 44. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Um, but obviously, you can uh, grab your Bible, a Bible in a pew maybe, or pull it up on your electronic device. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. And these men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I don't know how many comic book fans we have uh, listening today, but one of the famous arch villains in the Batman universe, the DC universe, is the Riddler. The Riddler is kind of this uh, psychopathic villain who uses puzzles and riddles to create chaos and destruction. That's kind of his vehicle or mode. And <clears throat> I thought about the Riddler when I was looking at this passage today because we see Jesus doing something similar. I mean, obviously the Riddler uses riddles and puzzles to lead people into chaos and harm and destruction, but early on in this text, we see Jesus leading people through a question, but it's actually a riddle, and you'll find that out as we study it. It's a riddle that's designed to lead people to a particular truth about who he is, which then forces them into a situation where they have to respond to this inevitable conclusion. So, riddle me this. 
verses 35 and 40. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, this is a kind of a weird, strange passage. I was saying to people this week, when I looked ahead in Mark last Sunday night at what I'd be preaching on, this was not a passage that had a lot of immediate internal uh, resonance with me. I kind of looked at the passage and was like, yeah, I've never heard a sermon on this passage. I don't think I've ever studied this particular part. I'm not sure what's going on here. And then as I've studied it, oh, it's come to life in all kinds of interesting ways. So let me try and simplify it for you. And then, and it's helpful to start at the end where it says the large crowds listen to Jesus with delight. What he's doing here gets the, the crowd who's behind him, who's appreciated his teachings on the kingdom and his example, the, the, the vulnerable and, and those marginalized and those under the weight of Rome or under the weight of the religious leaders. They love this particular teaching. So it obviously has some kind of emotional resonance with people. What's going on? Remember, over the previous few weeks, we've been looking at questions that in quick succession get posed to Jesus by religious authorities. He's asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's kind of a trap question. Then he's asked by the Sadducees, uh, this, this mocking question, they're kind of trolling Jesus. Uh, in the resurrection, if people are married to a lot of people on earth in the resurrection, who would they be married to? Doesn't that make the the idea of a resurrection in the afterlife, just foolish and ridiculous. And then he's asked what the greatest commandment is. So he's had three questions posed by religious authorities. Now he's turning the tables. He's asking them a question. And it's really a puzzle. And, he, and he's posing it to the scribes. And remember, the scribes are teachers of the law or lawyers, some translations will say. These are Bible experts. They're people who are responsible for copying over God's word in a meticulous way. So these are people who know the text very well. They're experts in the law. And here's the riddle. Jesus says, everyone's in agreement. All the religious authorities are in agreement that the Messiah will be a son of David. Everyone nods their head. That's right. Son of David, meaning a descendant from David. He will come through David's line. And son of David means that by virtue of the fact that he's in the lineage from David down, he's inferior to David. Because in ancient cultures, you saw uh, lineages as a hierarchy. That's why the Jews are always tracing their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they're the big, important forefathers of the faith. So David, as a pentultimate king in Israel, he's this powerfully important person And the scriptures seem to point to the fact that the Messiah is going to come from his lineage. So the Messiah is going to be a son of David, but therefore inferior to David in terms of stature. And Jesus says that's interesting because in Psalm 10, David, speaking about the Messiah, calls him Lord, which you would never do to someone, to one of your descendants. A Lord is someone who is above you in authority. So Jesus is kind of posing a riddle. How in the world could the Messiah be both a son of David and inferior to David, but also have a occupy a place whereby David would refer to him as Lord, as governing authority? 
And the riddle is designed to lead people to the conclusion, we might say, well, that would only make sense if the Messiah had two natures. If in a human nature, he was a descendant of David, but in a divine nature, he had authority over David because he was Lord. Now, the religious leaders don't get that far. They don't necessarily make that connection. But that is where the riddle is supposed to lead people to saying, the Messiah that you're looking for, religious leaders, is more than just a son of David. It's more, this isn't just going to be another important person in Israel's history. This is going to be someone whom we're going to be able to look at and say, yes, son of David, but also Lord over all. This theme gets picked up in Romans 1. When Paul's writing to the Roman church, he says, regarding Jesus, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, in his human nature, we can draw Jesus' lineage, but who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the point is Jesus, with this riddle, is actually exposing the superficial ideas of the scribes, these Bible experts who know everything, you know, Bible answer people, they can handle any question. Jesus poses a question that they can't answer. They don't know how to deal with it. And people love it. Because everyone loves when know-it-alls get ribbed a little bit. And especially know-it-alls who, maybe not all of them, but many of them, are operating, as we'll find out, with a lot of hypocrisy, with a lot of pomp and circumstance that see themselves as know-it-alls, they're posturing like know-it-alls, and Jesus just asks one question, and they're flummoxed. The crowds listen to him with delight. They love Jesus' depth of knowledge of the scriptures, the edge which, with which he asks questions, his courage in standing up to religious know-it-alls, and in some cases, religious bullies, people who use their knowledge to gain authority over other people and kind of push them around. So Jesus shifts immediately from exposing the superficial understanding of the scriptures that the scribes had. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you've understood the scriptures in a very superficial way. They're not just pointing to the Messiah, they're pointing to the God-man Messiah, and I am that person. All of these scriptures ultimately are pointing to me. What are you going to do about that? Then he goes on to confront the superficiality of their faith their actual practice of their spirituality. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. Watch out for the scribes. And in different parts of the gospel, this warning gets extended to the Pharisees, Sadducees, all the religious elite. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So he issues this really stark warning, likely in their presence. So you can see now he's embarrassed. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, um, they wanted Jesus killed before. Now they are becoming unhinged and they're going to look for all kinds of ways, including slander, to bring a charge against Jesus to get this guy eliminated because he's showing them up again and again in a very gracious, but strong way. He's warning about these religious leaders who leverage their own positions of religious power and religious authority not to serve God's people, which is what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to be priests connecting the people to God, but they're leveraging their positions 
in order to line their own pockets to make their own lives easier. They see their uh, positions as a permission to extract and extort from other people. They wear these they love wearing robes. They love wearing these outward displays of authority when they walk through. Oh, look, there comes a scribe. There comes a Pharisee. They love kind of getting the attention of people. They love being greeted in the marketplaces or in the synagogues. If a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee walks into a synagogue, everybody stands up. You stand up. They're the religious authority. They're the experts on the things of God. And everywhere you go, if people are standing up and giving you deference, that can begin to work on your ego a little bit. You begin to think that you are a different kind of class of person. Maybe you are closer to God. Maybe you are more holy. They love the prominence. They get places of honor at, city, at community feasts. You know, I was thinking, uh, you know, if, if there was a big community feast here in Nelson and I was invited, no one in the community would want to be sat by the pastor, right? Like no one. They're like, oh, get me as far away. But 2,000 years ago, uh, religious authorities were in a similar way, not quite in the same idolatrous way, but in a similar way were the mega celebrities of the Jewish world. And so it would be like having a person of significance. Oh, I, I, I want to be up front. And, and yes, right this way. And there'd be so much deference to that. And they were used to this. And they loved that prominence that came from being seen as a next level kind of person. Jesus warns that these are people who devour widows' houses. They're involved in schemes of economic exploitation that target the most vulnerable, which are poor widows. But they are doing all of this while making a show of themselves through lengthy prayers, going on and on about maybe praying through the Psalms and reciting large chunks of Scripture that they've memorized on the, on the street corner, and people are really impressed, and they just love to go on and on at long, flowing prayers and poetic and whatever you can imagine. They love the virtue signal. They love the posture as if they're so spiritual. And Jesus says, these men are going to be punished most severely. All of this hypocritical false religion is detestable in the eyes of God. And if you think through some of these things, leveraging power and authority, outward displays of wealth, um, a desire for social prominence and social status, a desire to be seen as extra holy, extra blessed, devouring the um, finances of those who are easily exploitable. To me, you can't help but make that connection to modern-day prosperity gospel preaching. For some of you, it's sometimes called prosperity theology or prosperity gospel um, preaching or churches or theology. And this is something to be on the lookout for because especially in the Western world, this is kind of a dovetail between cultural values that gets enmeshed with a lot of biblical-sounding language, and so it can trap people into it because it kind of sounds like, like there's Bible words and they're referencing Bible scriptures. But we have to grow in our understanding of being able to identify it and then reject it. So prosperity theology, a theology of prosperity, sometimes called the health and wealth gospel, basically says that held by some Christians, that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for people. God wants you to be healthy and strong. God wants you to be wealthy. That is God's will for you, bottom line. Which means, if you're not, 
you're doing something wrong to interfere with that. Because God wants to bring that into your life, so why don't you have it? Well, it's something wrong on your end of things. You're creating a blockage. And so by mustering more faith or through positive speech, self-talk, and not so coincidentally, donations to these ministries, which are seen as seed, uh, acts of seed, sowing seeds of faith, right? It's, it's trusting God for a breakthrough. You donate $1,000, God is going to give you supernaturally 20000 somehow. So these manipulative schemes that built people out of money, um, that these are all avenues through which you can unleash or release this prosperity that God wants for you, but you're getting in the way of. And so prosperity theology kind of views the Bible as sort of a um, karmic, karma kind of contract where here are the rules, you observe the rules and you do the right things, and then God releases like a slot machine in the sky, prosperity and blessing on you. And so you're kind of in this continual dance of got to say the right prayers in the right way or claim faith or stir up my faith or do certain things or sow seeds of faith, i.e. money, over here, and that will release the treasures of heaven. And Jesus, again, if you're reading through the Gospels, you're attentive to the words of Jesus, and then you read through the New Testament, I hope that we could see that that is a complete bastardization of the gospel. But it's pretty popular. And it's increasingly popular in the third world, where some of these prosperity gospel preachers go and say, hi, poor African village. Would you like to hear the good news of Jesus? The good news of Jesus is that you can be healthy and wealthy just like that. All you have to do is sow what little seeds of faith you have into my ministry. And so these are people who are literally devouring widows' houses but doing it through the lens of I'm bringing good news and I'm helping people to get into the uh, alignment with these principles of prosperity. And again, it sounds biblical, right? Doesn't God want us to prosper as a community? I think so, generally speaking. But is prospering always linked to um, increased economic affluence, increased comfort, and increased physical health and complete freedom? from any kind of resistance in terms of sickness and illness, I don't think we see that in the scripture. And so prosperity theology and the prosperity gospel is something that I would say on this passage alone, Jesus is saying, people who peddle this stuff are going to be punished most severely. This is not what my kingdom is about. Don't look to these people for spiritual leadership. Hypocritical religion in God's name, hypocritical religion that seeks to exploit people who are easily exploitable in God's name, God will not tolerate. And the condemnations in Scripture are very clear toward especially leaders entrusted with the gospel who are to use that power to bless, uplift, help, support, especially the most exploitable people, and who instead use that to line their own pockets and to live a lifestyle of prosperity. Jesus says that kind of hypocritical false religion is something God will not tolerate. And that means that Jesus' kingdom and leadership within Jesus' kingdom is going to look very different from what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the prosperity gospel preachers are going to be pushing and peddling. So now what Jesus does, he's exposed the, the superficiality of their theology. He's exposed the superficiality of their lifestyle. And now he says, let me show you a real role model for what life in the kingdom looks like. I'm going to show you a kingdom role model. 
Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put into the treasury, more into the treasury, treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, this is already subversive, because if you were to ask people in that day, who should be your spiritual role model, the majority of people are probably going to say the Pharisees, people who take uh, the Pentateuch and also the written law and the oral law very seriously and trying to honor God in all the particularities of every life, down to exactly what kind of things constitute work on the Sabbath and, and, and real minutia of laws. Most people would probably say, good Pharisees. Maybe Pharisee like, like Nicodemus, who from all accounts seems to have been a fairly godly man. Others might have said them Sadducees, but they would have looked to the religiously powerful and the religious elite, the experts, the people with decades of seminary training, knew their Bible inside out and backwards. Those are the people who we should be following because they're the spiritual role models. Right? Makes sense from a worldly point of view, from what seems to come natural to how we think about things. And Jesus does something totally different. He's like, guys, Did you, see, did you see that old widow? That poor widow over there? You see? It was hard to see because she didn't give very much. It was just like two little copper coins. Amen. That's why it says truly. It's amen. He starts a sentence with amen. Only recorded rabbi in all of human history to start sentences with amen. Jesus doesn't need you to amen him. He will amen himself. And it's his way of saying, what I'm about to tell you is gospel truth. Amen. That woman has put in more into that box than any other person here. See, the rich people gave out of their surplus. She put in all that she had to live on. So first of all, not only does Jesus not point to one of the religious elite, not one of the Bible experts, he points to someone who by every conventional theological, social metric is the last place you would look for a role model. He points to a woman, which means she's not trained in the law. And who can trust a woman? They're emotional creatures. They're seen as second-class citizens within much of Judaism of that time. Not worthy of being educated because they'll squander it. She's a widow, she has no social power. She has no social standing. She's poor. She has no economic power. She has nothing that someone else would look at and say, oh, I want to follow in her footsteps. And five years from now, I want to be where she's at. But Jesus says, that is the kind of person who you can learn from. Don't look to the scribes and the Pharisees. Look to that widow. She is your role model in the kingdom. What kind of kingdom is Jesus inviting us into that has poor, widowed women as role models? And not Bible experts, 
not people who have everything together, not prosperity preachers who have wealth and have all the accessories of life that one would imagine if you were blessed by God, you would have. What kind of Jesus, sorry, what kind of kingdom is Jesus building where a poor widow is a role model for for spiritual vibrancy and faithfulness? And there's an important lesson here. And it's a lesson that is as hard for us to swallow as it was for them. That those who the world, the general culture, sometimes even the religious subculture, dismiss as irrelevant, unworthy, insufficient, damaged, useless, are often the very people through whom God's kingdom, God is going to use to bring forth his kingdom. The people that the world so easily dismisses as useless, unworthy, not educated enough, not rich enough, not influential enough, God delights in using them to bring glory to his name and good to the world and upending our expectations of the kinds of people who make a difference in the world. That's why in Romans 12, Paul's counsel to the churches is live in harmony with one another. It's a command. We're to live in harmony as a church. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's important because in a lot of ways, those are people who you have just as much, if not more, to learn from than people of high position and high status. The kingdom breaks in from the bottom. It doesn't break in from the top. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, Paul writing to the Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Do you remember when you became a Christian? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you have ever gotten the message, maybe it was from a parent when you were young, maybe it was from a family member, maybe it was from a school teacher. If you've ever gotten the message that you are unworthy, unlovable, incompetent, you don't have enough of this, you need more of this, you're not able, nothing of substance is going to be able to happen in and through your life. If you've gotten the message that you are worthless because you don't measure up in these ways, you are a prime candidate for Jesus to use powerfully in his kingdom. And I say that as someone who had an elementary school teacher who told my mom in slightly more nuanced terms, Jeff's not really going to amount to much in his life. And really from a worldly point of view, maybe she's right. They might not look at what I'm doing as being successful, but I believe that God has taken someone who is damaged and um, broken and was prideful and wildly self-centered and superficial and has over time redeemed me into a vessel, weak as I am, but a vessel through whom he uses, by his grace. And that's all of our stories, right? That's the gospel, that Jesus' gospel is good news for the poor, and not just the economically poor, but for the poor in talent and the poor in intellect and the poor in potential. We're all lost sinners spiritually, We're all not good enough. We can't save or rescue ourselves from the power of sin. 
But Jesus came to deal with the sin issue for us, to die in our place. But not just so that we can have forgiveness through his resurrection and ascension, to conquer the power of sin and death, to put his spirit within us so that now we can live a new life, saved out of a life under the power of sin and death, saved into a life of purpose. We were made for a purpose. We're just saying that, right? That's what the kids learned all week. And that purpose and that meaning and that power through which God can work in you is not really contingent on all the awesome things that you bring to the table. It's really just based on your openness to being used and your faithfulness in the little things. It doesn't require these advanced degrees, this training, this amount of money in the bank account. God says, actually, sometimes those are an impediment. I love to break into the world. I love for my kingdom to be established through the weak and the lowly, using the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And so God, through us, begins mending the world and overcoming evil through fragile, insignificant nobodies who in Christ become strong, significant somebodies. And God uses for his kingdom. And you think about that and you're like, is there better news than that? Is there better news that a lost and lowly sinner could be saved, not just forgiven from their sins, but saved from their sin into a new kind of empowered life? No other philosophy, no other world religion offers a narrative as compelling as Christianity. And did you catch why this woman was held up as a role model to the other disciples? She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now the translation there, I understand what they're doing. They're massaging the original Greek so that the meaning is a little bit more clear. And it's not a wrong translation, but it's an applied translation where instead of taking the original Greek and porting it over and just letting it stand and letting that hit you, they're applying it in the context of giving. So what they say is, she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on. The Greek ends that statement with she out of her poverty put in holos bios. Just two words, holos bios. Holos, all, bios, life. She put in her whole life. So it's not really... Jesus isn't... This isn't really about finances on one level, right? He's saying she's a model for discipleship. Because Jesus is drawing a parallel here between the proportionality of the sacrificial giving in the temple and the percentage of, to which one is living for God. So these rich people who have lots of extra money, they're throwing in huge sums of money, but they're not fully devoted to God. This poor widow, she put in her holos bios, her whole life, everything. She's gone all in with God. She hasn't segmented her devotion and saying, I'll honor God here and then I'll live my life here like the religious, uh, those in religious authority have done. And even though she has so little to give from a worldly point of view, it looks like it's insignificant. Why would you even bring an offering like that to the temple? Jesus says she becomes a model of total commitment to God. And you can learn from that. Now, depending on where you're tracking... 
your heart may be in your throat a little bit, and you might be thinking, Jeff, are you saying that if I don't give all my income over to God, that I'm not fully devoted? I'm not fully devoted to Jesus. And I want to say no in the sense of you don't have to dump your entire bank account into the offering plate. But it's a yes in the sense of discipleship is a call to yield and to surrender your whole life to God and to recognize that this is no longer yours. It's to be stewarded in service to the king. And it's clear that Jesus does connect how we use our wealth. And don't just think money. I'm talking human capital, uh, your education, your social capital, your social influence. He connects how you use that with the depth and sincerity of your faith in God. He does connect those. Someone who has turned their holos bios, their whole life, all of their life over to God, will increasingly move into a kingdom pattern of joyful self-sacrifice. Yes, in their money and their finances, but also in lots of things in their life, in their home, in, the, in, the, in the, inviting people around their table, and how they spend their time at work, how they recreate. They're looking for ways to live out of this genera- uh, generous mindset and this modeling of Jesus, this self-sacrificial, joyful giving to others. And as you grow, as you, if you've given your whole life over to God, it doesn't happen overnight, but you grow in that direction and you grow away from kind of consumptive self-indulgence. If you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years and patterns of consumptive self-indulgence haven't really abated that much, um, that should be a, a diagnostic check for you. Because generally speaking, as we follow Jesus over time, more of our resources get freed up to the kingdom. We learn to do without so that other people can be blessed and served through our giving. Again, not just financially, but through the talents that we have. Where, like Andrea, summer off, teacher, could have just chilled the whole summer, but volunteers to lead our VBS, right? Sharing the wealth of the experiences of what God has put into her. These are examples in kingdom living. living. And lastly, I think what I love most about the story is the incredibly hopeful and inspiring truth that it confronts every single person with. And that is this. No matter who you are in this room, no matter who you are listening to my voice, even the poorest among us can bring a worthy offering to God. Even the poorest among us, the poorest financially, the poorest talent-wise, the poorest in terms of social standing, the poorest in the kingdom of God can still bring an offering that Jesus delights in. And that gets Jesus' blood pumping and saying, yes, that is awesome. That is eagerness and joy in the kingdom. Think of all the excuses the widow could have used. Legitimate excuses. It's not a lot of money. It's not going to make a lot of difference. I'm poor. Uh, I have no social standing. What do I have to contribute? Why am I even going to the temple today? Like, probably better off if I don't even go. She had so many excuses that she could have used to sideline herself. And I hear that from a lot of people. I know that goes through people's head. There was this time in my life where I'm like, well, I know I'm supposed to tithe or grow towards that, but I make so little money that my tithe is so little that it's not really going to do anything. So I'll wait until I have more money and then I can really make a difference. I'll wait until I have this training, then I'll start to do this. I'll wait until I have these experiences, then I'll start to reach out. 
And that's just falling into a worldly way of understanding things. That's not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is use what you have right now. If you have loaves and fishes, bring it. It's not enough. That's fine. Jesus, that's Jesus' problem to deal with, not yours. If you have two little copper coins, that's not enough. That's Jesus' problem to deal with. You bring it. I know there's people probably sitting here today who are like, well, there's no point in me giving or serving because I don't have the talent or the experience or I can't do this or it's not a lot of money or I'm not expert enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. You know, I just, I just kind of come here and take, not from a, in a sense, a selfish point of view, but just because I don't think I have anything to contribute. And this story, I think just that this story has to undercut that whole idea. And I get it, because from a worldly point of view, from the outside looking in, you might, you might be right. Yeah, maybe you don't have the talent necessary to do this, or the money necessary to do this. But if you are a Christian, what you need to understand is you don't have the right to self-select out of contribution. That's not your call to make. When Jesus says, follow me, when Jesus says, give, when Jesus says, serve, you don't get to say, oh, I totally will, when it would seem to make sense to me that I'll actually have an impact. That is not your right. You have got to bring your offering, even if it's two copper coins, and say, Jesus, I honestly don't see how this is going to make a difference, but I'm trusting you. That's what everyone needs to do. It's a question to let hang in the air, but what, would, what do you think would become of our church if only the best and the brightest and richest serve and gave? If we actually had vetting procedures whereby we sideline people unless they were in the top 1% of take any particular category, this place would be shut down within weeks. The kingdom of God moves forward as people sacrificially bring to Jesus what they have. Don't self-select yourself out of contribution because you don't have enough fill-in-the-blank. Because God loves to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so this morning, as Jesus points to that poor widowed woman giving her offering, let's follow the trace of his finger. Let's follow it and follow this woman's faithful example. Let's give Jesus our holos bios, our entire lives, and then let him use our offerings to bring glory to his name and goodness and healing and hope to the world. Let's pray. God, sometimes it feels like a huge risk to bring to you what feels really meager and small and insignificant. But God, in the scriptures, in the gospels particularly, you have this amazing pattern of taking what is lacking and multiplying it and doing something with it that only you can do. So take our lives, God. Take our offerings. Take our talents. Take our fledgling steps in contribution and service and use them, God. We want to give you our whole lives. May this widow and her offering be an example to us this week. Amen.